Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Father, thank you for your grace to us again this day, your blessings over watching over us and caring for us. We thank you for all that we enjoy in Christ and bless our uh, conversation, our study, our endeavors to understand the book of Philippians. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I got a quiz here for you, but it's been two weeks, right? So, you know, who's going to remember? I know it. That's just the way it is, yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, the, pe- the penalties for, for getting them wrong is not that great, so you don't have to, you know. We dock your Social Security in this class, you know. That's, that's what we do. It goes into Obamacare. It's, 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 it's going for a good cause, you know. They need all the money they can get, you know what I mean? So, number one, a Christian must must learn not to dwell excessively on past failures. True. True. I mean, Paul says forgetting what is behind. You know, you don't want to dwell excessively. You don't want to just ignore our failures because we have to repent and try to go forward. Two, Paul allowed the Philippians to disagree with him on some minor matters. Minor matters. True. Remember he says in 315... If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Number three, those whom Paul describes as enemies <clears throat> enemies of the cross of Christ, this is chapter 3, verse 18, were professing Christians. Those whom Paul describes in 3.18 as enemies of the cross of Christ were professing Christians. We said true because Paul said, you know, we were talking, many, most people think they were, because Paul is very concerned about the behavior. He says, remember, he says, I tell you uh, now, even with tears, it, you know, Paul sees this is very sad. You know, I mean, we, we expect, we expect uh, you know, unbelievers to, be, uh, to attack the gospel and be opposed. We don't, there's nothing to be too upset about that. That's just the normal course of things. But when professing believers uh, are attacking the truth, then that, that's it's a very disturbing consequence. Five, the future existence of Christians will be one without a body. Remember Paul says in 3.21, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we'll be like his glorious body. So we will have some sort of glorified body. We don't know the exact extent of that, but it'll be some sort of bodily existence ultimately in the future. All right, we're looking at at, at uh, chapter 4, verse 2, final concerns here. We're on the final go-around here. Two, we've got two sessions left here. Just tonight and next week, two, two sessions, 4th and the 11th. I say here the exhortations that began in verse 2 appear to indicate, the exhortation that began in verse 2 appear to indicate that Paul has concluded the body or the main idea of the letter. These exhortations include verses 2 through 9. So these are final exhortations or concerns. Paul often at the end of his epistles will have just, he'll exhort people, do this, do that, be sure that you do this, you know. Uh, so here we have that in verses uh, 2 through 9. And after that follows a word of thanks, 10 through 20. 
Paul thanks them for their giving to him, their concern for him. People have thought this is the main point, that reason that Paul is writing. He wants to thank them for their generous giving and support of him. And then we have a closing in verses 21 through 23. So we start off with these exhortations. And the first one is a final call for unity in verses 2 and 3. Now, we've seen calls for unity. or Paul, we've, That's what we've been talking about quite a bit in this epistle is if there is one problem in the church there, at least one, it's there's some problem with unity. Remember, you want unity in a church, not unanimity. Not everybody agrees on everything, but people agree on the basics, on the big things. They agree on the basic doctrines, and they agree on the basic purpose of the church. They, they have kind of a united purpose. Here's what we're here to do. If you have, if you, I've been in churches where people are divided. Some people want to do this. Some people want to do that. That's a real problem. And so uh, Paul wants the church to be unified here. And so he has a final call for unity. And he actually, this gets pretty serious because he mentions two ladies by name. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syndike to be of the same mind in the Lord. Uh, people who study the Greek language will, will tell us that uh, Paul is very uh, concerned here because he, replete, he, re, he repeats the word plead. I plead and I plead. You know, he's, he just repeats that, uh, which is quite emphatic here. So, and the fact, remember we talked about, he calls them out by name. You know, what if your pastor gets up and calls your name out in church on Sunday? You know, you wait, wait, <laughs> he's talking about me. You know, you, you know, you don't usually hear that. I've never, I've never been in a church service where the pastor calls somebody's name out of you. I've never heard that at all. Okay, what does that mean? Well, there's a lot of kin, so you it might be another kin, you know. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Well, here he actually calls out the names, and that, that must have been shocking. Remember we said when, he, when this letter is read to the uh, Philippians, you know, by Epaphroditus here probably, who's going to come back with this letter. He's returning from Rome probably with a letter, and, and, he, and he reads this out. If they're there, it could be quite embarrassing. I say here, apparently the problem of unity at Philippi was serious since Paul mentions two ladies by name, Euodia and Syndike. These were clearly two females in the church. These are, these are not names. I mean, nobody names their child now Euodia or Syndike, do they? But <laughs> these are well-attested names in Greek literature. So they are names that we know about. And plus, in verse 3, he refers to them as women. You know, it says, uh, help those women. Um, it's very clear that we're talking here uh, about a couple of ladies in the church here. So this is a clear rebuke. This is a very strong rebuke. Now, the precise nature of the quarrel here is something we don't really know, you know, um, Paul is not taking sides here. He just rebukes each one. He doesn't take sides. Some, something they're doing, they're quarreling, is a threat to the unity of the church. Maybe some people were on one lady's side and some people were on another lady's side. And Paul has heard about this. He doesn't say which is right and which is wrong. Um, but obviously this is so serious that Paul calls their names out. 
which would probably be a warning to others who are, you know, following one or taking the position of one over the other. He says then in verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help those women, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. I say at this point, Paul seeks to enlist the aid of a third party. The NIV translates it here, my true companion, whom he challenges to bring these women together to help them reconcile their differences. So he says, help these women, because they have contended by my side in the cause of the gospel. These are not unbelievers. These are people who have helped Paul, but now they've gotten into this fight. And this is going to hurt the church here. And so he's appealing to this person uh, that the NIV translates, my true companion. Uh, The Greek word, it's it's a word that uh, sometimes is translated uh, yoke fellow, true yoke fellow. Different translations will translate it together because it has the idea of true and then a yoke or true companion. Uh, Some people have tried to say this is a proper name. It's not like in our literature in English where you capitalize a proper name. There are no capital letters in, in, in the original languages or anything. You can't, you know, tell. And, and, and the problem, you know, in, in many languages is that um, names mean something. And so a word can be somebody's name. And so, but the point is this, is this is never a name in any Greek literature. So most people don't think it's a name. Some people have said, well, this is, he's naming this person. Just like he named Udia. And Syndike, he's naming this person, Sugzugas uh, is, is the word in, in Greek, but it's not found anywhere else, so it's probably a description of someone. It's, it's not a proper name. It's a co-worker that worked with the Apostle Paul. Now, obviously, this person is well known to the Philippians. He just says, my true companion, and apparently they would know who this is, um, this is probably a person who of some influence, a person who has skills, you know, it may be reconciling people. Now, some people feel quite strongly it's Luke. Remember, uh, we said that this church was founded in Acts chapter 16 when Paul got the Macedonian call. And when he got that Macedonian call, it was Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. Those four were together in Acts 16 when they went to Philippi. But when they left Philippi, Luke stayed behind. And so he was there with the Philippians until Paul comes back on his third missionary journey. And then Luke goes with Paul to Jerusalem, over to Caesarea. He goes with him to Rome, and we we know he goes to Rome. So what would he be doing in Philippi? Well, many people think he has gone back to Philippi. You know, he has gone back there for some reason, and so Paul is appealing to him. Now, we don't know. This is just a guess, but many people feel that maybe... This is, this is Luke, who would be very influential in the church since he's Paul's sort of right-hand man and he was there at the beginning of the church. That, that's possible. I say here in the next paragraph, inasmuch as Euodia and Syndike had once labored with Paul, they should be able to do it again. Now, he says they have you know, they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Perhaps they were members, they were uh, among the original converts. You remember when Paul, when the church was established in Acts 16, Paul goes there 
and the first he the first thing he does is go down by the river where some Jewish people were meeting uh, on the Sabbath day down by the river there. There was no synagogue there. The, the rabbi said that if you had ten Jewish families in a community, you were supposed to form a formal synagogue. Uh, apparently there was no formal synagogue there. There wasn't enough Jewish families, and so they just met informally down by this river. And you remember there, uh, Lydia, you know, is the first convert there. The Lord opens her heart. But it says, uh, it says there in Acts sixteen thirteen, on the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. So there were a number of women there. We know about uh, Lydia who is saved, but uh, here obviously we went a couple more. So they they may have been, you know, some of the original uh, converts here to the church, and they had worked with Paul. In, in the original mission there, and Paul felt like, you know, they should be able to settle their differences and work together. So he calls upon this person, this unnamed person, maybe Luke, to try to settle this out, settle this difference, reconcile these people. Uh, they had also worked along with a person named Clement. Uh, we don't know who this Clement is. Paul just names this person, but if we don't have any other record or anything to tell us about that. And he also says, uh, the rest of my co-workers, they're not named either, um, but he says all these people have their names in the book of life. This is a way of just saying these are saved people, isn't it? Because this uh, reference to the book of life is a, you know, you're familiar with that. It's a, it's a common reference, especially, especially in the book of Revelation. It's mentioned a number of times that it's a, it's a way of saying that when a person is saved, God records that. God knows that. We're in the book of life. We have life. Uh, so there's, um, like Revelation 3, 5, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. And remember the great white throne, the, the dead, the small, and the great standing before the throne. The books were open, another book of them, which is the book of life. And so... These people are not found in the book of life and so forth. So the book of life is a kind of a way of saying you're enrolled in heaven and so forth. So Paul is just saying these are saved people. All these people are saved people, and they should be able to work together for the cause of the gospel. All right, let's look then to verses 4 through 7. We said that uh, the first thing that Paul does here is have a series of exhortations in verses 2 through 9. And so he first exhorts unity. He spells out this. And now he has some other exhortations. These are kind of things we see at the end of Paul's other epistles. He, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. And again, that's why you remember many people feel like maybe joy is the theme of the epistle possibly because Paul references joy another time. And here he has a command. To say, rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. I say here, from his previous exhortation to unity and from his attempt to correct a case of disunity, Paul proceeds to exhort the church to maintain certain positive Christian virtues. So positive Christian character characteristics. Uh, he names a num- another moment here about gentleness and, and thanksgiving and various things. But the first one he talks about here is to rejoice. And he says, rejoice in the Lord's always. And he repeats that. 
Um, maybe, maybe uh, you know, why does he repeat that? Maybe because it's a hard thing to do if you're at Philippi, maybe. Remember we've talked about how that Paul said at one point, you have the same struggles that I have. They were, they were undergoing some opposition, and it's hard to say rejoice, you know, you know, someone is going through great difficulty, a, a very serious sickness, or they've lost their job. You know, it's hard to go into somebody's house who's just lost their job and say, well, we rejoice in the Lord. You know, it, man, who wants to, you know, you, <laughs> it's not easy to say that. But maybe Paul repeats this because we, it, it, is, it is important to rejoice even in spite of our difficulty sometimes. Uh, we have the ups and downs of the Christian life. We all go through them. Here we have attacks of false teachers we know that are coming into the church, personality clashes among believers. These are difficult things. And in spite of that, threat of death, you know, as Paul was facing himself, Paul says we're supposed to maintain a certain spirit of joy in the Lord. Now, again, uh, some people get... Some people take this a little too much and you know it's not like we go around always smiling there's a time to weep <laughs> there's a time to be sad you don't go into a funeral home and rejoice you know at that kind of thing but what paul is saying here is it's not saying we're not sensitive to troubles and our own difficulties but there's a sense in which because we're christians because we're citizens of heaven and we know our destiny we know what's ultimately important there should we should be able to cultivate a kind of an inner joy, a kind of an inner compati- uh, uh, s- s- uh, being s- satisfied with the situation we find ourselves in, with the will of God. Uh, if we count the will of God the highest joy, and we believe God is sovereign and in control of our lives, then we should be able to have some sort of inner joy, some inner peace. It's it's not easy. <laughs> you know, we all struggle here. But Paul says we should be able to rejoice in the Lord. Now, not <laughs> that's about it, isn't it? Because it's hard to rejoice when things go wrong, when your car breaks down, when uh, problems in the family, all the things, uh, problems of life and so forth. But the fact that we know, uh, and I, I don't know if you, but I think about this sometimes when I'm laying down at night and sleeping, getting ready to go to bed, I, I kind of reflect on that a little bit. I don't know if you've ever reflected on that. You know, no matter what the day has happened, no matter what kind of difficulties you may be having, you know, how ill you are, how sick you are, how problems, the fact that you know you're in Christ, you know your destiny is settled, you know you have a home in heaven, that's that's really the, the important thing, isn't it? I mean, that's because if, if all we have is this life, we're of all men most miserable, aren't we? If, if we're just counting on, you know, if we're just if all if we're just trying to get the ma- if it's just this life, then we're trying to get the maximum satisfaction we can, and and if we don't get that, it's very disappointing, isn't it? But if we have uh, the will of God and we're Christians, we can we can lay our heads on our pillows, I think, at night, and in spite of the circumstances, have a sense of joy and purpose and knowing. Uh, we're in the will of God and those kinds of things. I say here, clearly Paul does not have in view such superficial happiness as manifests itself only when things go well. No, it's a rejoicing that you can have always because it doesn't depend on changing circumstances. It depends upon the fact that we, are, we know the Lord, 
we we uh, have the Lord as our Savior, we're trusting in Him, that kind of thing. Well, then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. These are these series of exhortations. They're not necessarily connected. They're just general virtues. We should rejoice, have a sense of joy as best we can. We should be gentle. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Not pugnacious, you know, but gentleness. I say the imperative of verse 5, the command, may be viewed as reinforcing Paul's call for believers to rejoice. The word gentleness has the idea of kind of gentle forbearance, a gentle person, uh, someone who forbears, someone who is not pugnacious, someone who is not always attacking. Um, Because genuine Christian joy is not so much inward looking. We learn to rejoice not by concentrating not on, not on our own need for happiness, but you know on the needs of others. Remember what Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Remember that, Philippians 2, 3? Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Remember, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. That's what we're talking about with this gentle forbearance. Uh, looking to the interest of others, regard others more important. And that, if, we, if that's true, then we're going to be more forbearing, more forgiving. I say Paul reinforces his command with a simple but powerful comment, the Lord is near. So apparently, you know, maybe he wants to remind us that the Lord manifested this kind of forbearance. You know, he, he had this kind of attitude of gentle forbearance. And he may return at any time tonight, anytime. And so we ought to be aware of that and follow his example. He says in verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. But uh, But in every situation, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I say here the appeal to our Lord's return in verse 5 also becomes the basis for the exhortation, the command in verse 6. It begins with a prohibition, a negative command. Do not be anxious about anything. And then on the positive side here, Paul commands his readers to present their request to God. Um. So he has, first of all, a command not to be anxious about anything. That's all-embracing, isn't it? And then on the positive side, he has this all-encompassing positive side. Prayer, petition, thanksgiving. Every situation, present your by prayer, petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God. So... Both are absolute, you know, and don't don't be anxious about anything. <laughs> That's hard. Anything. <laughs> and in everything, in every situation, every situation, bring these things to God. By prayer, petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God. These are diff- just different words for prayer. Notice Paul is he he's he's emphasizing, and he's emphasizing by just repeating words for prayer. Uh 
these are somewhat different, but they're all related to prayer. The first word that's used here by prayer, that's translated prayer, NIV probably translates this pretty well. The first word is just kind of a general word for prayer, like our word prayer. But, you know, prayer is made up of different things, isn't it? And so one of the things it's made up for is petitions. We ask things. We ask God. And maybe we do that too much, you know. But a lot of our prayers are, or it seems to be mostly petitions, don't they? But that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Paul says petition. Thanksgiving. So part of prayer is giving thanks. Thank you, God. Uh, it's, it is, you know, it, it is unhealthy. It is sort of sinful to just always be petitioning and never thanking, isn't it? And then present your request to God. So he has these different words that are commonly used to, uh, that are used in Scripture to, to talk about the various aspects of prayer. I say next to the next paragraph, we should compare the apostles' command not to worry with our Lord's similar instructions in Matthew 6.25. Do not worry about your life. This is the same word. Um, so this passage is, uh, is, is similar to you know, our Lord's words in Matthew 6.25, that famous passage there where he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. What does the King James says? Uh, Take no thought. Is that what it says? Take no thought for your life. Take no thought. The word that's translated take no thought is the same word that's used in here that says don't be anxious about anything the the niv translates matthew 6 25 therefore i tell you do not worry it's the same word don't be anxious about your life what you will eat or drink about your clothes what you will wear and so forth so paul says here uh, we are not to be anxious about anything and that's really hard to do isn't it this is one of the chief problems I think many of us have is worry, a lot of worry. It's one of mine. I mean, <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of problem with this worry and fretting and so forth. I don't show it outwardly. You know, it kind of gets me inwardly. I don't express it, you know, outwardly and vocally. But, you know, uh, I can tell it in my stomach, you know, when I'm upset and worried and, and that kind of thing. The reflux comes up there and so forth. And so uh, it's good to, to reflect on that and remind our... So that's what Paul is doing. He's just giving a general exhortation here. Don't be anxious about any area of your life. And uh, it makes me think back about that passage in Matthew chapter 6 and following. If you're familiar with that passage, our Lord goes into some detail about worry there. And he says, you know, don't worry about your life. Don't worry about your clothes. Don't worry about what you will put on and so forth. And he has some reasons there that are helpful, you know, reasons not to worry. He talks about the fact that, you know, we shouldn't worry because God is caring for us. God, God are, is our father. And he is concerned about us. Remember he says in verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They, they don't worry and they have food. Uh, your father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than the birds of the air? And so he, he, he says, first of all, you, know, you shouldn't be so worrying all the time because uh, God has given us, because, because God is sovereign, he's in control, um, He's, he says, God has given us, God has given us 
the most important things. He goes into the passage there and says he's given us life. He's given us uh, he's given us life. He's given us uh, a body. He's given us everything we need. Certainly, he'll take care of these other needs and so forth. His big point there, uh, you remember in Matthew chapter six, however, is uh, is again he talks about the sovereignty of God. God is over and control over our lives. Um, God, God, God is an absolute and total control. Um, and therefore, if he is an absolute and total control, then our fretting is worthless and wasteful. It, it sort of, um, it sort of uh, suggests that we don't trust God as we should. He says it doesn't do any good. You can, who can add one hour to their life by worrying and so forth? He has a number of things there, but it's good to sometime if, as you read this text, verse six, to reflect on, go back and reflect on Matthew six twenty-five through thirty-four there, because uh, our Lord gives some very helpful instructions there about why we shouldn't worry, and it's good to reflect on those and remind ourselves because this is a constant problem for me. It is, I don't know if it is for you that. As things come up and difficulties, we tend to fret about them, and, and we overly do it sometimes. We just overly do it. We get caught up in that, and it's, we have to learn. And it takes time. It takes, takes a lifetime, doesn't it, try to learn to trust God more. So Paul just gives a simple exhortation here and says that, um, you know, our, he just exhorts us not to worry, uh, and we and we don't we shouldn't because God will meet our needs and we can pray to God and trust God and so forth. And he says verse 7 if we do this and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I say here if the Philippians heed Paul's exhortation in verse 6 to let their requests be made known to God the certain result is that whether their petitions are granted or not, his peace, which is beyond what they can imagine, will stand guard over their hearts and minds. So there is a kind of a peace, a kind of settled confidence, a calmness in the midst of trials that a Christian can experience. It's called here the peace of God. Um, it's an answer to prayer that God gives us. And, you know, if you've been through some difficulties, you may have had occasion to experience this, you know, because you've just been upset and fretting and you've kind of sat down and prayed and trusted God and you've, you've gained a certain measure of peace, of mind and heart. Remember, this is different from people often distinguish peace with God and peace of God, you know, those distinctions. Paul says, in Philip, you remember in Romans chapter five. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So, uh, when we are saved, we are justified. We are now at peace with God. We're not enemies. In that Romans chapter five, it says, "When we were enemies, the unbeliever is is God's enemy. We're we're God, God is God is opposed to. He's going to send people to hell. You know who who haven't trusted Christ, but." When we are saved, we are reconciled. That's what peace is. We are reconciled to God. We're no longer at war with God. So we have peace with God. But then beyond that, there is this sort of 
inner peace, isn't it? It's kind of an inner sense of wellness, of well-being. And Paul says an answer to prayer, uh, if we make our request to God, if we don't, we don't just constantly worry about all these situations, but in every situation of life, whatever comes up, if we bring this to God, pray about this, you've probably done this, I know, you know, so a situation comes up, you start fretting, you start worrying, and you don't even think about praying. You know, it just the last thing you, you come to is prayer. And then finally, you get down and you say, oh, and you start praying about this, thinking about this, praying. And, you, and it does help, doesn't it? I mean, you get a sense of trust in God. You recognize what's important. And that's what Paul is saying here. And this peace will guard our hearts and minds. I say here, um, Paul characterizes God's peace with the words, which transcends all understanding. This is similar to Paul's statement, remember, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, where he says, God can do beyond all things what we ask or think. And this is peace that, that, that uh, transcends our understanding. And so, uh, and, you know, we've had many examples. We see many examples in history of people who have been under extreme difficulties, who have, who have, have trusted God in very difficult times, being martyred and, and, and other things, even, you know, just all kinds of things. People who are, who, you know, I mean, you, you, we've heard of circumstances, we know of circumstances uh, uh, where people have said to Christians, how can you be so peaceful? How can you not be upset or, about this? Why aren't you just falling apart? at this terrible situation that's happened. Well, the reason is this peace of God that a Christian can have because they know they're in the hands of God. They know God is sovereign. They're trusting God. They're praying to God. They're leaving it in His hands. And this is a kind of a peace that transcends normal understanding of what people in in the world, they don't experience this. And so this sort of guards our hearts and minds from... from, from, uh, from outside enemies. It guards our hearts and minds from just being beyond control and, and just totally losing it and so forth. You see those pathetic scenes, you know. You see those, maybe it's part of the culture, I don't know. You remember those scenes on TV where people are, maybe, maybe it's part of the culture where they're weeping and wailing, you know. You see where somebody's killed. I think about the Middle East, you know, and Muslim countries, and somebody's killed, and they're just weeping and wailing and dashing about, and maybe that's maybe part of that's the culture. But if there's no hope, then there is. You can see why you're screaming and hollering and and just falling on the ground and everything like that. It is. It is. It is a sad situation. Well, then uh, finally we get to a final couple of uh, exhortations here. Uh, obedience and peace, verses uh, 8 and 9 here. He says, uh, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I say it with finally, Paul concludes the exhortation section of this letter. In verses 10 through 20, he will again acknowledge their material support. But verses 8 and 9 conclude the concerns about the Philippians. 
This verb think, most commonly used by Paul in the sense of reckon, often in the King James is tra- it's, it's translated reckon, think. There's a lot of words that are sometimes translated think. This is not the normal word for just normal intellectual activity. Uh, I say here, thus Paul is not so much, it, it, the idea is take into account rather than simply, th- so he's, he's, he's not just saying think about these things, but take these into account. It's a little difficult to, to translate. Thus Paul is not so much telling the Philippians to think about these, that is think high thoughts, but to take into account the virtues that have, they have long known from their own past as well as as long as they are conformal to Christ. So Paul says, um, it's very important to have your thinking right. Right thinking leads to to right acting. (laughs) Right thinking leads to right actions. And so it's very important to have our thinking right. And so what is right is is, is, is governed by the character of God. Whatever is right for the Christian has to be defined by God's character. So what is holy is what's in conformity with God's holiness and so forth. Um, And so as we're in the world, we experience a lot of things. Uh, We experience a lot of good things, uh, a lot of fine things, but we experience a lot of things that aren't so good. Um, There's good music. You know, there's good art, and these and these things can be enjoyed and experienced. Um, so one can one should think about things that are pure, things that are lovely. There are things to be admired. You know, if you see uh, a building that's well constructed, that's something to be admired. You know, uh, theologians talk about. Um, Theologians talk a lot about what's called common grace. And the reason they talk about this is because we know that the Bible teaches that, that all of us are born depraved sinners. Uh, there's, Paul says in Romans, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. Well, wait a minute, Paul. What do you mean? There's none that doeth good, no, not one. I know some people who do a lot of nice things, you know. I know some people who are unsaved that go around collecting money and and, and provide meals and do all that. How do you explain that? Well, theologians explain that by what's called common grace. God gives grace, not saving grace, but God gives grace even to the unsaved. It doesn't save them, but it's what's called common grace uh, to, uh, to people. So you have people doing good things, unsaved people doing good things. Now, their motives aren't always the best. They aren't always right. Many times it's selfishness. Many times it's to be, I want to look good in front of my neighbors and this kind of thing. So it's not the purest motives in that sense. But the point being here is there are things to appreciate in the world. There, there is, there's no, um, it's not like, there's no sharp difference between what we may call sacred and secular. There's not a sharp difference there. It's not like there's a whole set of sacred things, and there's another whole set of secular things, and we can clearly distinguish those. Uh, as I say, there's good music. It's not just Christians who can produce good music, you know. Uh, I mean, Bach produced some pretty good music, you know, and Beethoven produced some pretty good music. I'm just using those as examples. Uh, Mozart produced some pretty good music, and he was certainly not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. So... Uh, 
there are things to be admired. There are things to think about that are noble. There's a lot of junk, you know. <laughs> That's the problem. There's a lot of junk to think about. And we're flooded with the media, aren't we, on TV? We think about TV mainly, but books and other kinds of things. There's just a lot of terrible things. And so our minds can fix on these things. Um, And that's a difficult thing to control. We have to somehow control all this input that's coming into us. And Paul is telling the Philippians, it's better if you would you know, control your hearts and minds here and think about these more positive things, these things that are pure and lovely, things that are admirable, things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy. Think about these kinds of things. Um, And um, if you do, uh, this is going to make you a much better Christian. This is going to affect the way you live. It's going to affect your sanctification. And uh, it's going to certainly affect the church at Philippi. It's, it's going to help them in their problems with unity and, and so forth. So it's, it's, it's important to, th- to have our thinking right. And I guess we have to guard our thinking. Uh, thinking precedes doing. And so in verse 9, he gets around to the doing. He says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. Do these things. Remember the King James says, do these things. So you have to think about the right things. We have to watch our thinking, our minds, what we put in and so forth. And then that will help us practice the right things. And he uses himself as an example. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So I say here, Paul finishes his exhortation with a note on imitation. We've seen that note before a number of times, haven't we? Something he had previously urged, remember 317. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Paul is very strong on this, on following his example. Uh, You know, most of us... We feel we feel we, we we would feel kind of arrogant saying that to other people, you know, um, to say follow my example. But here's this is the Apostle Paul, of course, and but but you know there's something important there because, um, I mean Paul's concern throughout this letter has not been so much on the content of the gospel. It's not been a letter dealing with doctrinal problems so much, has it? We've talked about it. It's not really been like Galatian, Galatian heresy. There's not been a heresy here. The problem with, with, with the Philippians is how the gospel is lived out. You know, and the best way, one of the best ways to see that is to see how it's lived out in other people's lives, you know. We're fortunate that we have the Scriptures, you know, in our language and we can read the Scriptures and so we concentrate more on that. But remember, these people didn't have any New Testament scriptures to speak of at all. Here's the Apostle Paul who comes into town. Uh, these are basically Gentiles. And uh, we know pretty soon, pretty shortly, they would have become acquainted with the Old Testament, translated into Greek and so forth. But they didn't have New Testaments to turn to. They didn't have Bibles they carried around. And so, you know... I mean, we've all heard stories. How many people have been influenced by other people, you know? Many people who are saved 
Isn't that true? Many people are, who are saved are saved because of the witness of somebody. When we say witness, we mean their life. You know, they, they, they see this person, they know this person, and that has a strong influence on them, don't they? Our, our lives can have a tremendous impact. And Paul is urging these people. So, it, to, so it's incumbent upon us, you know, I think, to, to have a life that people could, could look at and they would, they would see a good testimony about Christ. They would see something that would, would point them to God and so forth. Um, and that's why that right thinking is important, you know. <laughs> uh, if, if, we're, if we're thinking about those proper things, if our thinking is right, then our actions will be right, and people can see that in us, and it will be a great testimony. Certainly it was for the Philippians as they followed the Apostle Paul. So as the Philippians take into account that previous list of virtues, they do so in light that they have learned or received or heard all this in Paul. And therefore they can practice these things. I say here with the word and, Paul indicates the consequence of heeding his exhortation. Here's what's going to follow. Whatever you have learned and received or heard from me or seen put into practice and, here's the consequence of of this right thinking and this right doing and following Paul's example, the God of peace will be with you. This, uh, this expression, the God of peace, is, is something that's found in the Old Testament first, and then it's picked up quite a bit by Paul in the Old Testament. Uh, Paul mentions it throughout his letters. He uses this phrase. He says to the Thessalonians, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And 2 Thessalonians 3.16, he talks about, May the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Um, 2 Corinthians 13.11, And the love of God and, and peace will be with you. And Romans 15.30, the God of peace. So you can find this phrase, throughout as a description of God. God is the God of peace. Um, so in every case where this is used, if you look at all those verses where I was quoting that, it's always in a context sort of like we have here. There is strife. There is unrest. And so Paul, he's always hinting at this problem of disunity, of strife that's upsetting the church and troubling the church. I mean, it's not it's not that the church is totally coming apart, but Paul has urged them to have the same mindset as uh, so that they don't have this sort of disunity. This, this, is, a, this is a bad testimony. This, this, is, this is not going to be good for the evangelization of the lost or anything. And so he closes with his teaching here uh, an example that they will have peace. If they do this, if they think these things, if they follow his example, then God, the God of peace will be with you. And this will be a very stabilizing force in the church at Philippi. Well, we come to this uh, final uh, statement here, um, a word of thanks in verses 10 through 20. Um, Remember I said way back at the beginning, um, people who study these letters intently and so forth, they try to, um, they try, when they study the New Testament, 
since it's written 2,000 years ago, you're looking for other kinds of literature that is similar to the New Testament. Can you find things that are, that are similar to that? It might help you in interpretation, possibly, if you can find. So people study the Gospels, they look and see, did anybody else write anything like the Gospels and so forth? Well, nobody did write anything exactly like the Gospels. They're sort of unique, they're kind of biographical and so forth, but there aren't any other exactly like Gospels. There are, we talked about, there are letters. People wrote thousands of letters, and Paul's letters are in many ways similar to other people's letters in some ways. They tend to be longer than than normal letters. Um, But one of the things people wrote is notes of thanksgiving. We do today, but we just have a card that says thank you, don't we? (laughs) We get a thank you card. We write a little thing in there and send it off, you know. But people in the ancient world would write long letters of thanks, you know, and I think that may have been more common in, in our, you know, even in our culture hundreds of years ago or so forth. But people wrote these long letters of thanksgiving, and so many people have compared Paul's letter here because he goes into quite a bit of detail. Uh, usually the letter starts off with thanksgiving, but Paul's thanksgiving comes at the end here uh, of the letter. So as I say here, Paul now turns to acknowledge the Philippians' recent gift and thus to rejoice over this evidence of friendship. You know, maybe people wonder why he didn't say it at the beginning, but maybe he wanted to deal with these problems in the church first and then finally get to this this thing about thanksgiving because he is very, very happy about that. So he talks in this thanksgiving about... uh, Need and contentment. And so he's going to bring out a very important lesson in, in the bringing out of this thanksgiving and, and giving this thanksgiving. He's going to talk about um, the fact that um, he's, he's going to give us a great lesson on contentment here from his own life. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last... You have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I say here, Roman prisoners had to supply their own subsistence beyond just bread and water. From what everything I've read about Roman prisons, I've tried to do some reading on this over the year. These were terrible places. (laughs) You know, people weren't put into prison. Uh, and given 30-year terms, and then they got out and stuff like that. Basically, prison was a place where people generally went to die. They just they just generally died there. Sometimes they were let out short sentences, but you know the nation of Israel really didn't even have any prisons. Remember, Israel didn't. They just put you to death, <laughs> or they 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 gave you a few lashes. You know, 30 lashes or something. They whipped you. They they gave you a penalty. They charged you a fine. They whipped you, or they put you to death. They didn't really have a lot of prisons, this long-term incarceration. Well, Rome didn't do a lot of that either. Uh, these prisons were terrible places. And everything I've read said uh, many, many, of them, many of the sources talk about bread and water once a day. So um, people who were in prison, if they didn't have somebody to uh, bring some more food, they usually starved to death. This is a common thing in Roman prisons. You just starved to death because... You, you just didn't have enough food to to uh, maintain your your health in these places. Terrible places, disease, and so forth. So, and we know you remember in 
fortunately, Paul, when he was in prison there in, in Rome, he was under house arrest, and but he did have people who were helping him and, and bringing him the things he needs and so forth. And so this is what the Philippians did. They're, they're sending money, they're sending gifts, whatever, to Paul, and this is allowing him to live. <laughs> this is allowing him to eat. So he says, I rejoiced, you know, when at last you renewed your concern for me. You were concerned, but you had no opportunity. I say when the, Paul had received the gifts sent by the Philippians through Epaphroditus, uh, and he mentions this, you know, later in chapter 4, verse 18. Remember, we talked about Epaphroditus before who had been sent by the Philippians and had fallen ill and so forth. Uh, I have received the full payment I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Uh, he rejoiced greatly. Or as Fee says in his comment, he burst into joy. He, just, he was very happy about this. So Paul had this vivid memory of this generous act. And if you were in a Roman prisoner under house arrest and you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, this would be quite a reason to rejoice when people brought you money that you could buy food with or gifts or whatever. Uh, when he says, at last you have received, renewed your concern, we shouldn't think about this as a rebuke. Paul is not saying, well, finally you got around to it. You know, Finally you did that. That's not the sense here. The sense here is that they they hadn't been able to help Paul. Remember, Paul was at Philippi, and I, and I said that on his third missionary journey, he came back through Philippi, but then he went down to Jerusalem. He was arrested. He was in Caesarea for two years. He was on that shipwreck. So they had lost contact with the Apostle Paul. They didn't know where he was at. He, they had helped him. When he first left Macedonia and went down to when he left, went to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, they helped him. They sent money there. He went to Berea. He went down to Athens and Corinth. So they, they knew where he, was, where he was at, and they were helping him. But now uh, they had lost uh, contact. And so that's what he means when he says, at last you have renewed your concern. He, don't take it in the sense that they were just, uh, they were just uh, unconcerned and they, they, they weren't. That, that's not the sense here. Uh, they just had a period of no contact. The fault is not theirs. It, come from, it came from a lack of opportunity. You had no opportunity. Perhaps, you know, we don't know why. They didn't know where Paul was at. They didn't have a messenger to send. Everything was irregular, you know, his shipwreck and all this kind of stuff. So um, so now they have finally gotten around to, to helping the Apostle Paul, and he's really happy about that. I rejoice greatly when you've renewed your concern. Well, Paul takes up now this, uh, this thing about contentment because he's going to use this circumstance about getting this gift from the Philippians to teach this great lesson on contentment. It's a lesson that you know, I think we can all be helped by. I have certainly have been helped over the years by this, and it's not an easy thing in the materialistic world we live in to be content, is it? <laughs> There's so many reasons, uh, especially not with all those good deals on Black Friday and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> it's, it's hard to be content when the, all those goodies are out there, you know, just for the taking, right? Just put the credit card in there and get it, right? That's all it takes, you know. <laughs> well, let's don't go into that right now because uh, we're about at the end, and this is an important lesson for us here. So we'll finish this up next time, and uh, we should be able to get through with no problem and 
kind of finish up around. So let's stop here for tonight. We're about 8.15 anyway. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week, and we will close out our study of Philippians.